I'm Elizabeth Chopin, Editor-in-Chief of Design Anthology UK. Welcome to the Design Dialogues. In this installment of our six-part travel series, produced in partnership with Accor, I'm speaking to Sophie Lovell and her daughter Orlando, co-founders of the Food Futures platform The Common Table and authors of Taste in Place, a book produced for hospitality network Design Hotels about food and the role it plays in regional identity, culinary heritage, and of course, travel. Hi, Sophie and Orlando. Thanks for being here today. I'm really excited to speak to you about food. Let's start with The Common Table. It's a platform discussing food futures and ideas around food production and consumption. Can you briefly tell us about it and why you launched it? So I come from a design and food background and my mother comes from an architecture writing background. And um, we would kind of sit around the kitchen table and just talk about the interconnection of those fields and really felt like there was the space missing where food and architecture and design meet. We're looking at food futures and systemic change. So with the platform, we kind of are really looking to approach and understand food-related systems that surround and include us. And I suppose I'm interested in hearing about how this connects to travel and hotels and their food offer. I just wanted to briefly segue into this notion of the good traveler, which is, I know, something that Design Hotels, which is who you produced Taste in Place, your beautiful book about food and travel and hotels for, talks about, and about someone who treads lightly by traveling less and more intentionally. And I'm really curious about how food plays into this mindset. Well, me and Orlando are kind of all about context and big picture thinking. And, and actually, it was during lockdown that I was guest editing the Directions magazine for Design Hotels. So I was editing this magazine when no one was traveling. It was a kind of a fantastic reflective moment to be doing something like this. And I came up with these 10 principles, I suppose, for sort of traveling in a better way, how to travel more responsibly, sort of aspirational principles, and uh, called them the good traveler. It was about kind of thinking holistically and slowing down and taking fewer trophies when you travel and transparency and asking questions when you travel. And they knew at Design Hotels that Orlando and I were working with the common table, with our food platform, and we started talking about food and part of travel, and we all said, let's do a book. Brilliant. And one of the quotes from that book, which by the way, for those who haven't seen it, is a beautiful tome full of ideas and essays and case studies on food culture and hotels doing something significant related to it. And a quote from it was, the food on our plate and the wine in our glass tells a story. It opens with a section on terroir. Am I saying that right? I have no idea. How do you pronounce it? <laughs> I mean, we're all not French, so. <laughs> uh, it's a word that many of us have seen and heard and read, but possibly not fully understood. I wondered if you could give us your understanding of it and how it originated. 
So the original idea of terroir comes from the French wine regions, um, and it just essentially means taste of place, which is also the name of the book. And it's about land, soil, climate, and flora and fauna, and people, and like everything that impacts these conditions. For us, then it means the understanding of what comes out in food and, and how to respect the place that you go to and how it tastes. But in terms of hospitality, it also means you need to look where you are and create an experience that reflects and respects the landscape and the people and the culture that is there. So it's taking a big picture perspective. It's looking at the whole ecosystem in a way as a whole as yeah, a, and travel, not just individual elements. I wanted to look into a couple of the case studies in the book and how terroir translates into the hotel's culinary offer. How does the food in these hotels find a grounding in the terroir of the region they're in? And why is that interesting for us as travelers? It was really interesting. Maybe we kind of take a step back that when we were choosing the projects for the book, Orlando and I, when we were working out the flow of the book, we went on a journey. There's some 300 hotels in the design hotels group, and we contact them all and ask them for their stories related to food. And we asked them to tell us about food stories. And it took a while because a lot of them, I didn't think that they were stories worth telling or were interesting. And then the more we dug into it, the more we found that, for example, there's this fantastic hotel in Satoyama Jujo is in, located in a province in Japan that's famous for rice. And it is a very heavy snowfall. It's mountainous. We sort of paired that as the opening chapter for the book with the Cambrian, which is in the Swiss Alps, that strange, it's the other side of the world, but they have a kind of similar climate and environment, but with different species and different traditions that have evolved around them. And different cultures. So we look at mushroom foraging or kind of foraging in both examples, in both locations. But then the way that the food maybe tastes or is preserved so the pickling processes or the way it gets to the plate are completely different. And that's the impact of same, same, but different across the world. And it, yeah, of course, the huge difference about the Japanese location, that's like the champagne district of rice growing in Japan. And they're super famous for their rice growing. The restaurant in this hotel there actually puts this staple as the kind of focus. It's a really, you know, it's a really good high-end restaurant and they put rice at the center of everything, which we really loved. You know, it'd be like putting potatoes at the center of the, <laughs> the menu um, here in Germany. Why are more hotels not approaching food thoughtfully, do you think? How each hotel implements their food offering and, and how they work with food and their guests and food individually totally depends on their place and their situation. The hotels also, they need to want to, first of all, and so the incentives need to be there. The guests need to ask about the provenance of the food and how it's made and who makes it. I think there's this really interesting interplay where we're at a turning point of kind of hospitality and travel and ideas of luxury are changing and hotels kind of say, oh, the guest needs to say what they want and they need to ask for this kind of food. And then the guest says, oh, I, I can't find a hotel that offers what I'm looking for. So I think it's a bit of both. I think we mm. all need to embrace this new idea of luxury that, that it's terroir, that it's good food, that it's respect and environment. 
And that also, I think, travel intermediaries, you know, agencies, platforms, journalism also have an influence in this. It's part of the reason we did this book. You know, if you start to draw attention to how a place relates to its food and its food offering and what's grown there and how the guest relates to that, it really turns a lot of things on their heads. Definitely. I think there is a growing movement where people want to be conscientious and they want to know the provenance of food and they want to know what they're spending their money on and making sure it's ethical where possible and or they're tapping into something authentic. I was interested in this idea of the alchemy that happens where a modern way of eating is born from these culinary traditions or the food of an area that go back generations or even centuries. One of the examples in the book was Bistro 626 at a hotel in Ecuador, where apparently the history of the food goes back to ancestral tribes, but the team in the hotel is creating this vibrant modern food. And that seems like one of the positive effects of travel, that new interpretations of local food are born. Yeah, I think we can't just hark back to old traditions because times are changing and we need to adapt and kind of see the modern. It's just that all traditions are more respectful because there is a closer proximity between land, food, and people, or historically has been, and we're kind of moving away from it. So I think learning from that, but staying current, staying up to date. Yeah, yeah, not so much about (laughs) making things a museum, but you go on holiday and you're like, you want to try something that's specific to that place. You want to feel like you've experienced that place. And there's no better way to do that than through eating the food cooked by people who are from there. There was another essay in the book that I really loved by Giselle Williams about Krustas village in Crete. I don't know if I'm saying that right. And it was a gorgeous portrait of a family and a place and sharing food together and how the local bread uses a mother yeast that was possibly dating back to Minoan times, which I found mind-blowing. And it shows how food can connect people across time as well as place, which I thought was interesting. Can you talk about how in your research the sense of identity and memory that comes through food can apply on an individual or family level as well as regionally and nationally? Big question. Sorry, um, that's, a, that's a lot of questions in there. <laughs> but it was this idea that there's also a story to be told at a family level and an individual level sometimes. In the book, we shared stories from places like Oaxaca and Mexico, uh, which you might think is one region, but actually it has 17 different indigenous regions and kind of groups and climates ranging from coast to mountains to plains. And we learned that there are over 200 different mola recipes there, for example. So it's not about going somewhere and trying one thing and being like, oh, I've experienced it now. It's understanding the complexity, I think, as well. Or you mentioned this wonderful essay, Island Ways, about Crete, and it's actually about society on islands and how that's evolved over a huge amount of time as the humans are part of the ecology of the Cretan island. We learn, for example, that Cretan honey made by bees that are feeding on thyme and savory and marjoram um, on the island was really highly prized by the ancient Greeks. And it's still treasured today. So, you know, actually they're saying that this yeast culture could come, they were half joking saying it could come from Minoan times. It's also quite possible that it did. (laughs) My jaw sort of dropped when I read that. How incredible. And here you have people making bread from this now. And that's what I mean by this kind of thread that can go through time as well as place. And I suppose that's an example of where humans are kind of central to it. 
Yeah, humans and their stories. I mean, we came across so many stories involving not just preserving or rejuvenating or sharing these traditional foods and their production, but also cases where hotels then were really empowering and supporting these endeavors and these people that were part of their system in order to share the process, but also the flavors with their guests. I think another example from Crete was the Fea Farmers Initiative, and these are also supported by the hotel Crete and Malia Park and includes hotel staff growing local produce for themselves, but also to sell to the hotel for their guests. So it's this interconnectedness that is so beautiful. Yeah, and it, we really had a great time digging for some of these stories, you know, especially, like I said, where places that people had not realized that they were stories worth telling. Because it was just so integral to the way that they do things. Yeah. Yeah, they thought there was no significance to it somehow. Now we'll hear a short message from our sponsor. Hi, I'm Aaron Rana, interior designer at Accor. At Accor, we work closely with our hotels to help encourage them to truly be a part of their local community. This includes responsible sourcing from local food producers, which also connects guests more authentically to each destination. For Movenpick, a hotel brand with food, drink and sustainability at its heart, we actively and continuously reduce food waste, source products wisely with an emphasis on local and seasonal produce and feed guests from our own gardens where possible. Movenpick aims to indulge in best practices that cultivate a sustainable future, reassure guests that it's indulgence done right, consciously and with a positive impact in mind. If you were wanting to book a trip to a hotel and make sure that you were going to have an experience that had meaning and depth and value as far as food goes, where would you start looking? How would you make sure that you were going to have that kind of experience? How do you, as a traveler, research beforehand to make sure that you're going someplace that is going to deliver that sort of experience? There are organizations that you can find green hotels. I think there's not enough of them. The hotel star system is massively outdated. It's something that's based on whether the bathroom's tiled and whether there's an ensuite bathroom and whether there's lifts or Wi-Fi. And I think we maybe need a new categorization system. And I think big, big platforms like Booking.com or TripAdvisor really need to provide this aspect for travelers because I think there is a desire there to find out if a place is ethically following certain rules or principles. But at the same time, it needs to be completely transparent. There is a lot of greenwashing in the travel industry. You know, you can't say, oh yeah, all our food's organic and not think about how your staff are cared for, for example. So we went to Jamaica to write our like research and write the last chapter for the book, Big Picture. And it really made me, me at least, realize that I think it used to be that you have hospitality experiences and they just get better and better and better the more luxurious they are because you have, I don't know, better quality, better materials around you, better views. I feel like there's been a split in this where now it becomes disgusting because we are so aware of the environment and the system that more luxury does not equal a better experience. It kind of takes away from that experience if it isn't looked at or treated in this holistic approach. It can tip into decadence. Sure. And I think that goes into something we are exploring in another episode of this series, which is 
how the idea of luxury has changed and what is considered luxury for people. I mean, now people will take time to understand how their money is affecting things when they spend it on a trip or a journey. And they do want to know the provenance of things. Time is a luxury. An authentic experience is a luxury. And I suppose an informed traveler will take care to understand the detail of menus that chefs are creating in hotels. But a lot of it, I think, will be an unconscious awareness. And some people just want to experience the sensual pleasure of food when they're traveling. Is there a place for all of this in the scope of what is a good traveler? Or do you need to be more aware to fall into that category? I want to be a good traveler. Yeah, me too. And I think maybe the first part is, you know, creating a demand as a guest, as the consumer, that you understand your responsibility as a guest, you know, that you should arrive with humility. You are a guest and that's the understanding of hospitality. With hospitality, you're opening up your home to people and you're sharing what you have, you know, whether they're paying for it or not. That has to be a respectful contract. And on the other hand, Going back to the Rock House Hotel, where we were in Jamaica, who do some amazing things. You know, they have their own garden. They have no single-use plastic. They put a lot of effort into supporting local education. They've been building schools for years and working with the community. The staff have pensions and healthcare schemes, and which is not given. Sorry, Sophie, to interject here for the listener. The Rock House Hotel in Jamaica was... The final case study that Sophie and Orlando cited that was a hotel that encompassed all of the values in the different sections of the book, which was Tawa, um, homegrown food, kitchen spirit, issues around waste and reverence, which Sophie mentioned before, just to give a bit of background. So it sounds like this hotel kind of encapsulates all these things. So... Paul Salmon, who is the director of the Rock House Hotel, has had a place since the 90s. Right from the beginning, they had a charter of responsibility to the environment, to the team, to guests and the community. So it was a very big picture charter, an open one. And he really believes that at the hotel, they need to provide a portal that people can go through if they want to, through creating awareness. That means the guests can just go and stay there and live their best life and, you know, jump in the sea and eat fantastic food and sunbathe. Or if they want, they can engage with some of the things the hotel is doing. You know, they can take a tour of the garden of the amazing new hydroponics center where they're growing all the vegetables and the schools that they've been working on. Or even if they want, become donors to some of the projects at the Rockhouse Foundation. It's an open exchange so you don't have to arrive and immediately engage with everything good that they do or or how their system works i think there is definitely space for a guest to be a guest for a moment and take their time that they need to arrive but then it's about having this openness and curiosity i think to where you are yeah it's a, you know for some people it's their special holiday it's a once in a lifetime experience and like as paul says you can't shove that down people's throats but if they want to engage they can i suppose the main thing that i took away from the book after reading it was the awareness that whatever is on my plate when i eat at a hotel in another place that that is just the end of a very intricate web of networks that have brought it there 
of people, of time, of the environment, which is, I think, really important to remember and something we probably all are guilty of forgetting sometimes. I was interested in one of the examples in the book of a landscape in lack, which is from my home state of California in Sonoma County and the water shortage there and how the Harmon Guest House guests can taste wine that is produced in these conditions and learn about the conservation methods that make it possible. And that, I think, seems like a positive way to turn it on its head and bring something to that experience because the water shortage is very serious. We have very serious problems in the state because of it, and it definitely affects the wine culture that exists there. But that was the first time I'd heard it presented in that way, in a positive light, where you can go and have a positive experience with this at the center of it, which was interesting. I think that ties into another thing about this changing travel experience is that I think for a lot of people that you want to go and stay somewhere and come away feeling good about that journey that you've made and not only feeling you've learned something, but feeling like you haven't gone and damaged the place more. And yes, of course, awareness and understanding is positive. You know, you can probably answer this question better than we can coming from California. Water saving endeavors in California is, you know, obviously super essential as in raising awareness for residents, farmers and the guests. But if you're looking at it from a really big picture perspective, one might be asking, is growing wine and peaches and apricots the right thing to be doing there at all long term with climate change? But, you know, the answer may be yes, if the process stops being extractive and becomes regenerative. Mm, Exactly. I'm going to sort of switch gears here and talk about spaces where people experience food in these places. So in the book, you say the perfect dining space is the mise-en-scene of a beautiful story that isn't told so much as tasted. And I was wondering if we could talk about these spaces designed for enjoying food at hotels and what you think the key ingredients are of the best ones. Is it the materials? Is it art? Is it light? Is it a wow factor? What is it that makes it right? All of it together. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I I really, we really believe that like the design of hospitality as a whole is so important. And that's why this kind of interest in design and food and the intersections of is growing so rapidly. So it's not just about creating the perfect dining environment. It's also about how to communicate what you're doing as a dining space. So for example, if it's all about organic, small local harvest, how do you communicate this with the space without writing it on the wall? So how can materials, lighting, setting, music environment, service staff, like how can everything and then the dish on the plate on top of it communicate with an ease to the consumer that doesn't, I don't know, if you write a menu card, uh, it shouldn't have to scream on, on every second word, like, this is sustainable, this is organic. There are so many elements in design that can bring that with it in a subtle but clear way as well. We did an interview with Holland Harvey, the architecture studio in London, for our Common Table platform. And they're just uh, redesigning all the Tate restaurants, which are such a fascinating kind of approach. And they kind of describe this so nicely, also coming from this architecture perspective, where they saw this as a eureka moment for them, understanding that the decisions that they take as an architecture practice, so the supply chain that they can choose is inherently having a wider social impact. 
So this doesn't mean that they have to go to their clients and explain every step of the way, but their choices are part of the supply chain that make it an ethical one. Right. And one might think that the guest doesn't know this because it isn't communicated in a dining experience explicitly, but I think it is felt. I think it is part of the entire experience. I think you're right. I think it is often a sort of intuitive feeling or a subconscious feeling that their soul in the food in the room is designed and how the food is being brought. I think there is also something to be said for the agency that chefs have these days and much stronger. Another interview that we recently did actually that's not quite published yet with the chef Arthur Potts Dawson who founded Acon Restaurant in London. He was kind of named the first green chef And he talks about looking deeply into the process of getting food on the plate in the restaurant because he realized that everything from the plate backwards was broken. And so he completely rethought the system and does that, you know, a lot with his work, helping chefs have agency in deciding what comes on the plate. And then if you go on to understanding the size and scale of your impact as a traveler and also as a hotelier, as super vital. At the Rock House, you know, as another example in Jamaica, the chef said if the fish was all locally sourced from the local fishermen, then the local community wouldn't have any left for themselves. So there has to be some kind of honesty of scale that's sustainable for the community and the people they're hosting. You need to always be thinking about that, you know, kind of how you achieve a balanced system that's not extractive but restorative in all senses of the term. Yeah, and I think there's kind of a common understanding in hospitality that you need to educate a guest, but the guest is king. So <laughs> there's this wonderful kind of uh, balance of showing, teaching, but also giving what is requested. You definitely can't give all guests everything they ask for. And so it's about how to approach and understand and make them feel comfortable and give them an environment where they want to try something that you can offer with a good conscience and are happy to serve. I think it's about humility, not entitlement. Yeah. Maybe like right. Orlando says, maybe this is the end of the era of the guest being king. This is the era of the guest being aware of the responsibility that they bring with them. Like I said, hospitality is about someone letting you into their home and sharing what they have. And that's a privilege giving and receiving with enjoyment and gracious appreciation. Like, you know, that just has to be a goal. Talking about things from the plate backwards being broken and people having lost their connection with provenance and where food comes from. Do we think then travel can restore it or help to restore it? Yes. In some <laughs> no. way. Yes, we do. We no. think that. No, nobody should travel anymore. Yes, no. <laughs> yes, it can. Yes, it can. If everybody involved is aware of their responsibilities Yes, we can. Involved, yes, we can. <laughs> and finally, I just want to end with the question about you both personally. The book so beautifully illustrates moments that you can have through travel and food. What have been some of your favorites? What have been some of your favorite moments with food while you're traveling? We kind of like to travel by hosting. <laughs> so we really love to host dinners. And for us, it's about bringing people together and watching the evening take on a life of its own, which also may be a form of traveling through conversation. Those moments that kind of crystallize at the table between people through food and conversation are really special to us. 
which is also the reason why we started our dinner series as 72 plus where we gather people around a table to eat and drink, but also to share thoughts and knowledge about specific issues, ideas, and kind of innovations. Then 72 hours after a dinner, we call each guest and ask them what they took away from it. So what they took from the table, what they remember, what they learned, how they grew. Again, it's part of our ongoing work in shifting mindsets and practices. And shifting our own, you know, I have to really emphasize that, that, you know, this has been a huge journey for me in Orlando as well. We're constantly learning and coming up across assumptions that we had that would just turn out to be completely unfounded. And when you start looking in a bit more closely, yeah, like Orlando says, dinners and we love traveling. We traveled right down through France last summer, stopping at different places on the way through different terroirs and tasting different foods. And I think our favorite moments there is just strolling through markets. Mm. Being in a Wonderful. local context. Yeah, yeah, being in a local context. Those are some of the best memories, just the strolling through markets and seeing where the wind takes you. I'm curious to go back for a second to the dinner party idea and calling the guests 72 hours later. Do you find that what people take away from it is something about the food or is it about the conversation generally? Because there's this idea that food is a conduit to a place and the people there and the connection. And I'm wondering what people have said to you. Good question. Um, both. Yeah, definitely both. I'm just thinking of, of a specific meal that we hosted a few months ago. It was a dinner about supply chains and with people from different industries and people definitely answered with what they learned from their other dinner guests. But there was definitely also mention of how fantastic the bean dish was. And, uh, <laughs> Excellent. I want that. Yeah. It, it <laughs> really like, worked does... hard on that bean dish. You know, we also had a, a pairing with natural wines with all the dishes. And for, for a lot of people, that was a, you know, kind of first sort of venture into exploring the world of natural wines. So again, it's an exploration of tastes and flavors that were, that and set ideas. them off and ideas. And mm -hmm. they then pair together. When I have memories, I think about the dish I had, but then I also remember, you might remember the conversation you had at the same time or who you were talking to or sharing that dish with. Multisensory. Yeah. Of course. And as hosts, sometimes the most enjoyable part of it is the preparation beforehand, the love you put into the pairings or the menu that you're going to prepare or going and getting the food and getting everything ready. I mean, sometimes the best memories are those. Not always, but <laughs> that can also be really stressful. But That moment when silence descends as everybody sort of gets lost in the food or that moment when you sit back and you see all these people who've never met each other before all of them in like deep and lively conversation with one another. And Orlando and I often look across at each other across the table then and kind of smile and we're like, yep, it worked. <laughs> <laughs> we did it. Well, I think that's a really good place to stop. Before we go, I'd like to end by reading the full quote from Nicholas Gill's essay, because I just think it's so beautiful and I would like to read it out. So... Foods can leave such a lasting impression on us that they become imprinted on our very being in a way that can be far more profound than a visit to a world wonder or a famous piece of artwork. These flavors aren't found in museums or behind a velvet rope. They are living, breathing records of a time and a place. Each taste is felt. We ingest their history and they quite literally become part of us. 
when we eat certain foods, when we understand where they come from and all the nuances that make them what they are, we become active participants in their survival. Goosebumps. So great. Yeah, goosebumps. It's it's so beautiful. We are so proud of the, the essays that were written for this book. We're so proud that they totally got it. Yeah. All the writers we invited and their contribution is massive to this story that we tried to weave together. Well, it's a beautiful story. It's a really amazing book and everyone should look through it and read it and take from it. Sophie and Orlando, thank you so much for talking to me about this. It's been such a pleasure and I've definitely learned a lot and I know that our listeners will have too. Thank you. Thank you. And you must come to dinner with us sometime next yes, time you're in I will. And if you come to London, you can come and I'll cook something for you. Beans. <laughs> beans. <laughs> I'll cook beans. This series is produced in partnership with hospitality group Accor. Please tune in next Friday when we'll meet the founder of Unplugged, a hospitality brand providing digital detox. Thanks for listening.